Well, good morning and welcome uh, to the Cato Institute. My name is Marianne Tupi. I'm a senior policy analyst here at Cato, and I'm also the editor of humanprogress.org, uh, which is a website that measures, uh, evaluates uh, progress that humanity has made um, over the last few decades thanks to liberal democracy. Uh, but today our topic is South Africa. On February 2nd, 1990, uh, President F.W. de Klerk uh, rose in uh, Parliament to announce his decision to unban the African National Congress, the South African Communist Party, and other anti-apartheid movements, as well as to release Nelson Mandela and other anti-apartheid activists from jail. That date was not accidental, coming as it did less than two months after the collapse of Eastern European socialism. As de Klerk noted in his speech, the collapse of the economic system in Eastern Europe serves as a warning to those who insist on persisting with it in Africa, those who, seek, those who seek to force this failure of a system on South Africa should engage in a total revision of their point of view. It should be clear to all that it is not the answer here, South Africa, either. The clerk's decision to dismantle apartheid was an act of great courage and wisdom. His assumption that socialism was dead was an act of great folly. Since 1994, uh, the country has been run by a tripartite alliance consisting of African nationalists, communists, and trade unionists. Whilst great progress has been made in terms of housing, electricity, and water supply, the overall standing of South Africa is dismal. South Africa's ranking in the Transparency International Corruption Perception Index dropped from 21st place in 1994 to 64th place today. According to the World Bank, the homicide rate in South Africa is the eighth highest in the world. The Economist called South Africa's education system one of the worst in the world, while the economic uh, World Economic Forum in Davos has ranked South Africa's healthcare as the 12th worst in the world. Between 1994 and 2015, per capita incomes in South Africa rose by 25%, roughly 1% per year. In Botswana, next door, they rose by 84%. Over the same period, life expectancy in Botswana rose by seven years. In South Africa, it has declined by five years. It is perhaps not surprising that the ANC is becoming deeply unpopular and leading the charge against its corruption and mismanagement is the Opposition Democratic Alliance, uh, one of whose leading stars is with us today. City of Johannesburg Executive Mayor Herman Mashaba grew up in a small village on the outskirts of Pretoria during apartheid. Having lost his father at the, at the age of two, Mashaba embraced independence early in life. When his studies were interrupted by the secret security forces during the struggle against apartheid, Mayor, Mayor Mashaba decided to pursue a career as an entrepreneur instead. Over the ensuing decades, he has built a business empire uh, that included companies in cosmetics, constructions, um, real estate, retail, energy, and financial services. His success earned him an honorary doctorate 
in Business Administration from Central University of Technology in 2013. In 2015, Mashaba decided that he could no longer be an armchair critic of what was happening in South Africa and entered politics as a mayoral candidate for the city of Johannesburg for the Democratic Alliance, which is South Africa's largest opposition party. In the election of 2016, Mashaba was elected as the executive mayor of a coalition government with a mandate for change. Please help me welcome Herman Mashaba. to Chairman of the Board of Directors, uh, Mr. Robert Levy, the Cato Board of Directors, the CEO of the institution, Mr. Peter Godler, members of the Cato Institute, members of the academia and other research bodies here in the United States, representatives of political organizations, representatives of business institutions, esteemed guests, members of the media present, a friend of mine that I just noticed coming here to Mr. Yuri, Dr. Yuri Maltev or Professor Maltev. Good morning to all of you present this morning. First and foremost, I want to thank uh, the Institute Cato for generously and extending an invitation uh, for me to speak to you this morning. The Cato's Institutes believe in centrality of individual freedom alongside the need for social and economic freedom as the best means for creating a free society personal, personal, uh, personally resonates with me, like most of you, I guess, uh, here this morning. It is perhaps an opportunity that I have been asked to address you, all of you today. Today, South Africa, 41 years later, commemorates the 1976 Soweto uprisings. On the morning of June 16, 1976, thousands of students from the townships, uh, particularly in Soweto in Johannesburg, gathered at their schools to participate in a student-organized protest. The students sought not only to protest against the apartheid language policy being implemented in our schools, uh, but at the same time, protest against the government's apartheid policies as well. Theirs was a protest for freedom and equal franchise within our country. Theirs was the protest for the right to quality education and services, the right to access to proper schooling and healthcare, the right to have access to economic opportunities, and the right to pursue a life lived with complete dignity. The unarmed crowd of school children marched towards Orlando Stadium in Soweto, where a peaceful rally was planned. En route to the stadium, the crowd of more than 10,000 young people was taught by the apartheid regime and the police, who sought to disperse the demonstrators with tear gas and warning shots. When this failed, the police fired live ammunition directly into the crowds of demonstrators. That day, Two students, Hastings Ndlovu and Hector Peterson, died from police gunfire. Hundreds more sustained injuries during the subsequent chaos that engulfed Soweto and our country. 
The shooting in Soweto sparked a massive uprising that soon spread to more than 100 urban and rural areas throughout South Africa. The 1976 student protest further galvanized the generation of young people to fight against the oppression of the apartheid government. That fight, that struggle, would ultimately lead to South Africa's first democratic elections, which all of us, or most of us, voted for on the 27th of April, 1994. Sadly, despite our advance into democracy and peaceful government, Aspects pre-1994, South Africa, unfortunately, still suffer. The dream of a democratic South Africa, and all of which is signified, remains a dream deferred to my countrymen, particularly for millions of youth, particularly to, to black youth, who struggle against, against poverty and poor access to even the most basic of public services. It is the struggle I'm too familiar with. As already indicated, I grew up in poverty in a small village called Haramuts in Amanskarol, just 30 k's north of Pretoria. I know what it is like to struggle. I remember what it is like to have to drink water just to starve off hunger. I never had an opportunity to know my father, who passed away when I was just two years old, and my mother was a domestic worker who worked far away from home in Johannesburg for months at a time just to put food on the table. My sisters and I never had a house of our own. We were forced to live in homes of migrant workers while they were working away in Johannesburg. While this was not the most stable environment, it gave me a sense of personal independence from a very young age of my life. It was this independence and the desire to live in a true uh, in true freedom that drove me to succeed in business and now today drives me to succeed in public office as the executive mayor of the great city of Johannesburg. I started my hair care business, which are called Black Like Me, which I conceived in 1984. But in 1985, that's when I started this business with a 30,000 bands loan from a black businessman, a mentor and a friend, the late Walter Dube in partnership with a white Afrikaner, Mr. Johan Krill, who provided the technical know-how that I needed to start this business. In those dark days, the apartheid government did everything in its power to prevent a black person from succeeding. However, I was steadfast in my belief that no one could determine my own destiny but me. I've always been animated by the belief that true freedom is the, is the freedom for each person to be whatever he or she wants to become. By the time the South African first democratic elections were held in 1994, I was already enjoying a successful business career and political freedom had arrived at last for black South Africans. Back then, I was convinced that the new democratic dispensation would, birth, would give birth to an explosion of black owned businesses and entrepreneurs. Unfortunately, it was not to be. There was there's no denying that progress was made under the leadership of our uh, conic uh, president, Nelson Mandela, and also during Thabo Mbeki's era. However, under the current present leadership, many could not be blaming 
could not be blamed for believing that continued progress has eluded us as a nation. And it's actually quite sad to listen to the sum of the states already conveyed to us. For the second time in eight years, South Africa has fallen into the recession as GDP contracted 0.7% in the first quarter of 2017. All but two sectors of the economy contracted. This, of course, was preceded by an abrupt and allegedly politically motivated reshuffle of the president's cabinet. This very reshuffle subsequently contributed to South Africa's credit rating downgrade, forcing the then newly Minister of Finance, Malusi Gigaba, to go on a frenzied and frankly unconvincing charm offensive designed to reassure investors and ordinary citizens of the nation's economic stability. Just yesterday, our Minister of Mineral Resources made a shock announcement that all mining companies operating in South Africa must achieve 30% black ownership within 12 months. This all too familiar shock announcement cost the stock market 30 billion rands instantly. You see, achieving black ownership is a good outcome, but it has to take place in an environment of economic stability and trust between government and business. Adding to our nation's wars, South Africa recently recorded a 14-year high, high rise in unemployment with a national unemployment rate of 36.4%. There are, of course, many other reasons for my country's unsatisfactory economic performance, but it is hard to look past the failures of this present ANC government. Investors have little confidence in the current administration's ability to develop and implement policies conducive to economic growth and amount of foreign direct investments flowing into the country is suffering, unfortunately, as a result. Under these present circumstances, it is hard to imagine how the lives of everyday South Africans stuck in a, in a cycle of poverty could be improved by national government. Indeed, the South African Reserve Bank forecast growth for 2017 it's projected at just about 1%, down from 1.2% originally planned. Projections for 2018 were cut from 1.7% to 1.5 and 2% to 1.7 for 2019. The World Bank is even less optimistic with estimates showing the South African economy will expand by 0.6% 1.1% in 2018, and only 2% by 2019. As the economy continues in its present direction, the revenue within state coffers will dwindle in the face of ever-increasing social welfare budget. For me, at the very least, it is clear that despite South Africa's democratic dispensation, Far too many of our people continue to live under the same harsh socioeconomic realities that are lived under while growing up under the apartheid system. This is not the dream of the youth of 1976-44, for no, it is the dream former Nelson, uh, President Nelson Mandela worked so hard to achieve and paid dearly for it. Over a year ago, I decided I could no long, longer remain an armchair critic while my beloved country was being destroyed. I made a difficult decision to run for public office to serve my city and its residents 
who have given me so much to be thankful for over the last 35 years. On the 3rd of August 2016, last year, the people of South Africa in general and the greater city of Johannesburg in particular, in a watershed moment, chose to stand up and speak truth to power. They chose to oust the ANC for, uh, for its seat of power in some of South Africa's, South Africa's key metros, replacing them with coalition government, which bear a multiplicity of views and solution to our, con to our community's common problems. The mandate from our voters was clear. They wanted change. Change in the way government was run and change in the way services were delivered to our people. Johannesburg, one of the metros where voters saw it fit to install a coalition government in place of the ANC. Over 20 years of ANC arrogance and dominance were now over. The residents of the city had shown that the power truly rests in the hands of our residents. Johannesburg is now run by a government made of formal coalition partners while working alongside a political party called uh, Economic Freedom uh, the, the Fund, I mean, Economic Freedom uh, the, the Power, uh, called the EFF, South Africa's largest political party, whose vote with us on a case-by-case -case basis. The success of this form of government is wholly dependent on engagement and, negoti and negotiations. And this is something that I embrace. A lot of people, commentators, would always fear the EFF. As a city of Johannesburg over the last 12 months, we embrace this. This is because I truly believe that the challenge in leadership is indicative of the strengthening of South African young democracy. And this, without any doubt, has got to be celebrated. The 2016 municipal elections were the ANC's worst ever achieved in a democratic election since 1994 only achieving 53.9% of the total votes went to the ANC. Allow me to give you some context. This election result is significant in that it shows a dramatic decline in support enjoyed by the ANC from 70% in, in 2004 and 62.2% in the general elections of 2014. Deadline in support for the ANC is clearly linked to the president, our president, President Jacob Zuma, only, unfortunately, his presidency ending in 2019. Among most South Africans, the president's approval rating is at an all-time low, standing today at approximately 20% among South Africans living in metropolitan areas. In a recent Ipsos poll, 54% of ANC supporters themselves believe that the president should step down and he should do it that voluntarily. The ruling party, and by extension government, is currently beset by scandals as a result of his presidency. The most recent of the scandal, scandals is an allegation of state capture by the prominent Gupta family. Indeed, just over two weeks ago, media outlets across South Africa sought to use a treasure trove of between 100,000 and 200,000 unique emails to confirm allegations of the existence of an unsavory and corrupt relationship between the president and this said family. If one believes 
the rather compelling body of evidence presented by this report, corruption and political patronage operating at the highest level of the South African government. This corruption has developed into an accepted culture which has been kept alive and well for many years. The culture of blatantly looting state resources is the very thing South Africa voted against in the recent election and what may ultimately lead to the ANC downfall in the future. Unfortunately, the culture of corruption and mismanagement has not contained itself to the spheres of national government alone. How can it be? After all, if patent and unrepentant corruption is displayed by leaders at the very top, what chance did those within the ranks of a rank and file of government have? Walking into local government within the city of Johannesburg, I was shocked at the level of corruption which had, which had been allowed to fester by, by, by previous administrations. Previous administrations within the city had rewarded corruption with a slap on the wrist or merely swept it under the carpet while millions of our people continue to live in an apartheid-type capsule. Corruption takes food out of the mouth of the poor to fatten the rich, who already live in wasteful abundance. This, for me, is unacceptable. Ladies and gentlemen, in my time in the private sector, and now more in the public sector, I have zero tolerance for corruption. It is because of this that upon taking office, I immediately established a new internal investigative unit within the city. Through this unit, we have made inroads in exposing corruption and ensuring that those found wanting face the full might of the law. The city of Johannesburg currently has 1,083 open investigations ranging from corruption and fraud, theft, building hijacking and the like all totaling approximately 10.4 billion rents in revenue lost by the city. Put differently, these cases are equivalent to just under 19% of our city's total budget. Of the 1,083 cases under investigation, 143 directly relate to fraud and corruption. This represents an outstanding 8.9 billion rents in lost revenue alone, which could have been used to provide needed services to residents and upgrade our ailing infrastructure. So far, through investigations conducted by the city's own anti-corruption unit, the city has been able to effect 42 arrests. This is coupled with 109 suspensions of city officials suspected of fraud and corruption. This, unfortunately, is only the tip of an iceberg. There are many suspension arrests which are yet to follow. Just the other day here, already here in, uh, in Washington, I learned of further arrest of senior officials. I dare say fighting corruption is the change in, in government and leadership which many South Africans wish to see following the August 2016 elections. That said, as local government, our mandate of change extends further than combating corruption. We must also provide quality public services. We must effectively take up our role as government in creating a conducive economic environment for stimulating job creation within the city, despite the prevailing economic conditions brought on by the national government. 
Ladies and gentlemen, slightly over two weeks ago, the city's council passed a new budget and integrated development plan presented by my coalition government. This is the first in the history of Johannesburg. In my eyes, the passing of this budget was a victory for the residents of our city. This budget is a result of an intense and extensive public consultation process with communities and political parties across all platforms. Formulating this budget was no simple feat in light of the multi multiple competing needs and interests it must begin to address. Allow me, please, to put matters into context once again. There are 839,000 unemployed people in the city of Johannesburg who represent an, an unemployment rate close to 30%. These are the people struggling in the 181 informal settlements throughout our city, many of whom do not have access to the most basic services. These are, to me, the forgotten people. Since taking office, we have been unapologetically committed to uplifting these forgotten people and communities. The city also faces a 10-year, 170 billion rands gap in capital infra uh, infrastructure investment and maintenance. The challenge of simultaneously addressing all these concerns rather the budget is immense and actually sometimes frightening. At the heart of our budgeting approach, we have identified five strategic pillars which will influence the structure and design policy over the mayoral policy over the next five years. These pillars are also illustrative of my administration's commitment to getting the basics of service delivery right and delivering on the mandate of change we have received from our residents after the elections. These five pillars are, number one, growing the economy and creating jobs for our people. You want to reach a minimum of 5% economic growth uh, within the city by 2021. Number two, it's enhancing residents' quality of life by improving services and taking care of the environment. Third, advancing pro-poor development that provides meaningful redress to our people. Fourth, building a caring and safe secure communities. And lastly, instituting an honest, responsive, and productive government. Everything we do as a city of Johannesburg must be aligned to one or more of these pillars. During this financial year, the city will implement spending which will drive both these priorities and uplift some of our poorest communities within the city of Johannesburg. Allow me to highlight some of these interventions. Within the 26, 17, and 18 financial year, we have allocated 40 million, 40 million rands to enhance sanitation in our informal settlements compared to the 17 million rands allocated in the previous year. We have also increased the provision for electricity and water connections in informal settlements to 162 million rands. This is an increase of 42 million rands compared to the previous year. As I've mentioned earlier, the city has 181 informal settlements, which are testimony to the previous administration's failure to provide economic opportunities for so many of our forgotten people. We have allocated 66 million rands towards progressively 
focusing on the site and services housing development approach to housing development. This involves the provision of fully serviced plots of land onto which beneficiaries can be settled. These beneficiaries will immediately be provided with title deeds to their homes and enable them to build their own homes on top of the service stands instead of government trying to do it for them. Over the coming financial year, we have set ourselves a target of developing 2,000 rental accommodation units alongside developing 5,000 mixed housing development units in the city. We have also set aside the 574 million rents of capital expenditure and 115 million rents of operational expenditure for the upgrade of 10 informal settlements throughout the city in the 2017-2018 financial year. This will be followed by an upgrade of 20 informal settlements in the 2017, I mean 2018-2019, and 21 informal settlements in the 2019-2020 financial year. Ladies and gentlemen, to increase public safety, we have allocated 131 million rands towards increased GMPD visibility in our streets, particularly in identified crime hotspots in the city. The issue that um, was alluded to that Johannesburg is one of the dangerous places on earth. As I alluded to earlier, one of this administration's key priorities is setting the city on the path to achieving a minimum of 5% economic growth by 2021. To get the city's economy moving, we have allocated 16 million rents to expand the city's small to medium enterprise hubs from current seven, seven to 14 uh, to 14 by the end of 2018 financial year. These hubs are on top of shops for entrepreneurs to gain valuable assistance in starting up businesses which generate jobs for thousands of our people. This expansion will increase the number of SMMEs supported through this house per month to 1,250 by June 2018. And to ensure that we are able to support this growth 5.2 billion rands has been set aside for the purpose of upgrading existing infrastructure to meet the demands of our growing economy. A further 3.3 billion rands has been set up, put aside for the development of new infrastructure, while 4.3 billion rands is allocated to progressively addressing much-needed repairs and maintenance on our infrastructure system. The areas of spending, which I have briefly outlined for you, give you a taste of the direction we'd like to take as a city and a new administration. My administration wants to create a safe, diverse, and inclusive city where all residents have access to opportunities denied by them. In relation to this, we have also identified the redevelopment of Johannesburg inner city as another key lever in kickstarting the 5% economic growth I spoke of earlier. Unlocking the potential of the inner city cannot be done on the balance sheet of government alone. With only 10 billion rands set aside annually for capital expenditure and 170 billion rands funding gap for capital ex uh, expenditure over the next 10 years, we need to work with the private sector to achieve our objective. I believe that the private sector can easily pour a minimum of 20 billion rands each year into our inner city and turn it into a construction site within a matter of months. I also believe that through the private sector, we can provide world-class rental accommodation 
to what has become the missing middle of the housing backlog. I refer to people earning between three and 8,000 rents per month in our city. Many of these people reside in backyard dwellings in our townships and informal settlements because they do not qualify for uh, RDP houses from government or nor can afford to get bonds from the banks. So to make this inner city a more inviting place for our business, we have already doubled the cleaning shift within the inner city, including a night shift to service businesses operating in this inner city of Johannesburg at night. As I said earlier, we will also be providing support to small and medium-sized businesses in their quest to a, to, a, to a larger business that employ our people, especially in these areas. I believe all of us here agree that red tape unnecessarily increases the cost of doing business to incredibly pro prohibitive levels. If we are to reach our target of 5% economic growth, we have to cut unnecessary red tape. As such, we have initiated a review of all laws of bylaws in the city with a focus on those bylaws which pertain to economic development. So far, we have identified 20 key performance standards which are expected to drive economic growth in the city's business sector. These standards involve various subjects including fast-tracking building plans, approvals, rezoning applications, installation of new meters, and clearance certificates. In line with our priority to get the inner city working, we have allocated the budget, operating budget of 327 million rands for the 2017-2018 financial year and a three-year capital budget of 1.5 billion rands to the city's development planning department to capacitate the unit that addresses the key, these key performance areas. Although it is still early days, the work done by this unit is already yielding positive results for our city. Ladies and gentlemen, as the government of the city of Johannesburg, we are resolute in our mission to deliver quality services, especially where they never existed before. We are committed to creating an enabling environment for businesses to flourish and become employers of our people. We will not rest until the culture of corruption is broken and every cent of public monies goes to those who need it most, our residents, particularly the ones I refer as the forgotten people. Achieving this goal, this administration has set itself will not be easy, particularly in our present climate. That said, the broader question I'm, I'm sure many of you are wondering, well, this is great for the city of Johannesburg. What of the greater South Africa? I believe the true test and potential turning point for my country will come in the coming 2019 general election. For the first time since the dawn of democracy within South Africa, there is a realistic possibility that the NC may garner less than 50% of, of the elections, and that another political party or group of parties may find themselves in the union building in Pretoria. The Democratic Alliance, the party I represent, South Africa's official political party and the growing party in one province Four metros and 29 municipalities enjoyed increasing growth since in, in formation, uh, uh, formation. Getting only 1.73% of the votes in 1994, as the Democratic Party, its support has grown to 26.9% in the 2016 elections. South Africa's second biggest uh, party, 
Economic Freedom Fighters is also seeing increasing support. The EFF participated in the elections for the first time in 2014, managing to get 6.35% of the vote, which increased to 8.31% in the 2016 municipal elections. In the recent elections, if, in the, if, if the recent elections are anything to go by, the prospects of a coalition partnership arising out of the coming election is a real possibility. Certainly, the prevailing spirit of cooperation between political parties during this trying time has prepared both political actors and South African residents for a change and a new way of approaching government. Till then, we in the city of Johannesburg will continue to effect the mandate of change, which we have already begun, and this with a mandate by our residents. We will continue to strive to create the South Africa we all believed in in 1994, a South Africa which is not entirely out of reach, which all of most of us believe in. Ladies and gentlemen, I strongly believe that part of getting us there requires that we get the economic heartbeat of our country, Johannesburg, working. If we get Johannesburg working, we will then get South Africa working. As we do this, I believe that massive opportunities which exist for strengthening relations between business and uh, government and the city. My door is always open to those opportunities and I welcome all those willing to join us on this journey as we work towards unlocking the true potential of Johannesburg and South Africa. And I'm committed to this agenda as an individual. As I said earlier on and uh, my colleague also mentioned, I took a very difficult decision a few years ago not to be an armchair critic after experiencing something that happened in front of our eyes, beautiful Zimbabwe collapsing. And people of South Africa, including myself, took a conscious decision not to let South Africa collapse. And the only way we could prevent South Africa from collapsing was for us as civil society to stand up. I threw my head in the ring. A capitalist like myself, public service was not something that I thought one day I will get involved in. But then when it came to protecting my country, I had no option. And fortunate enough, more and more of our residents, of our communities are standing up to say this is not going to happen under our watch. The lesson we've learned with Zimbabwe collapsing in front of us, Zimbabweans spreading, going all over the world, majority of them coming into South Africa. All of us as South Africans, we had nowhere to run to. South Africa surrounded by the sea, and majority of us cannot swim. <laughs> so the only way to avoid running was to stand up while the constitutional framework of our country allowed us. And the local government of 2016, where the watershed, where civil society said, no, not in our name. And in two years' time, 2019, We've already begun that agenda, the agenda of the 2019. Because all of us as South Africans believe if we have to effect change, 
let us use our de democratic constitutional framework available to us to save our country. And I'm one of those South Africans. I'm now standing here in front of you as a public servant with the people of South Africa, giving me the privilege, giving me the honor to serve them. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. So thank you very much, Peter, everyone, for giving me this opportunity. Two years ago when I was in this building, I was still an ordinary capitalist in South Africa. Today I'm back as a public servant, and a committed one for that matter. So I'm saying to you, people of the world, here in the United States, South Africa is safe. The miracle we achieved in 1994, we run still on the journey. We're a country that believes for us to be able to make it, we need the private sector to work with us. And I think for me as an executive mayor of the city of Johannesburg, I'm not here in the United States asking for handouts or asking for favors. I don't believe in favors. I believe in mutual relationships. Because when people do you favor, you've got problems, you're in trouble. So us as the city of Johannesburg, we are saying to American businessmen and women, if you're looking for another great opportunity for your investment, please come and invest in Johannesburg. We need you. But as we need you, we know we want you to come and make money because when you make money in our city, you will invest more and more in our city. So Johannesburg is open for business. We are going through short-term turbulences, but are turbulences that are shortly going to stabilize. If you have to invest in South Africa, this is the time. Don't wait until 2019, because the stock market, the opportunities will be more expensive. So if you're a businessman with a foresight, please come and invest now during this turbulent periods. Then you'll, you will then enjoy the rewards of your risk taking in a few years time. So Johannesburg is ready for you. We're excited with this opportunity and thank you very much for listening to me. Thank you, Mayor. Uh, over the last 15 years, we have done a great deal of research here at Cato on Zimbabwe and on South Africa. So please visit our website, www.cato.org. Um, we have a number of studies, op-eds, uh, original research um, that uh, hopefully you'll benefit from. Uh, Princeton Lyman, uh, who was the American ambassador to South Africa at the time of the negotiations uh, that uh, culminated in the first multiracial uh, elections, uh, democratic elections in 1984, uh, was taken ill uh, yesterday, um, and uh, we wish him a speedy uh, recovery. Um, in the meantime, I'm deeply grateful to uh, Richard Tren, uh, a former resident of Johannesburg. Um, Richard is a um, program officer uh, at the Soro Freedom Trust, a grant-making foundation that supports research and policy proposals that will lead to a more just, free, and prosperous society. Uh, prior to working at Soro, he managed Africa Fighting Malaria, a non-profit 
that he co-founded and which was dedicated to promoting policies to improve malaria control around the world and in particular to defending the use of uh, public health insecticides. As part of his work, he authored uh, scholarly studies for, for numerous think tanks and academic journals. He is also the co-author of a 2010 book, The Excellent Powder, DDT, political, DDT's Political and Scientific History. In 2009, he was awarded the Julian Simon Award by the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Richard was born and grew up in South Africa, and he was educated at St. Andrews University in Scotland and uh, University College London. He moved to the United States in 2006 and became US citizen in 2014. Please help me welcome Richard Tren. Uh, yeah, th th thank you very much, Marion, and thank you to Kato for uh, having me. It's, it's an honor to appear uh, with, uh, with the mayor. And for those who came to hear Princeton Lyman, I'm, I'm sorry, I'll try, I'll try and do a good job. Um, I, I'm going to take on the role here as the armchair critic, given that the, uh, the mayor has now gone into public service. And just make a few comments um, on, uh, on, on why South Africa has reached this, this difficult point. Just yesterday, I was reading in, the, uh, in, in Business Day, uh, one of South Africa's leading newspapers, about the country's competition commission which is investigating several pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer, for the pricing uh, of uh, drugs in South Africa. They're, they're uh, very unhappy with, the, with the, the prices these drugs are being sold at. The article explained, however, that the prices are actually set by a commission in the Department of Health, uh, not by the companies themselves. And the companies are forced to sell their drugs at those uh, Department of Health prices. In addition, the Competition Commission is investigating Pfizer for a drug that's not even registered for use in South Africa. So one government entity is investigating and blaming private companies for something that a different government entity uh, has, is, is responsible. Uh, to borrow a, a phrase from, my friend, from, from our friend, Leon Lowe, the left hand doesn't seem to know what the other left hand is doing. Um, even if it's a cliche, I think it's, it's fair to call this Kafkaesque. Uh, let's just gloss over the, uh, the conceit, uh, we call it the fatal conceit as we're in the uh, Hayek Auditorium, of, of a Department of Health that thinks that it can uh, determine what prices should or shouldn't be. So uh, how do we get to this situation? How do, we, how do the rainbow nation, as uh, De uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu calls South Africa, become the, a rogue democracy, as uh, Washington Post colonist Michael Gerson described it? It's important to remember that under... Uh, first under President Mandela and then President Mbeki's governments, enormous progress was made in providing housing, uh, clean water, electricity, improved healthcare uh, to South Africa's citizens, grants for young children, pensions for, for the elderly. Uh, so progress made in all these areas, and yet uh, there's such great unhappiness in almost every week demonstrations against uh, the ANC and, uh, for, for, for service delivery. Um, the mayor has already mentioned the high unemployment rates uh, for, for, for South Africa's youth, South Africa's black youth, unemployment has been above 50% for, for many years now. And I think this is a really a, a principal driver of this, this unhappiness. Marion mentioned the declining, uh, uh, South Africa's declining status in the Corruptions Perception Index. South Africa's also been declining in its Economic Freedom Index, according to the, the Fraser Institute's uh, measurements. Um, and as as 
uh, scholars at Cato and at Fraser will be m much more eloquent uh, than I can, uh, can be in explaining how declining economic freedom leads to slower and lower economic growth, rising uh, unemployment and, and, and rising poverty. Um, when did the rot set in? Well, it's difficult to, to know. It is important to, to, um, to mention that, uh, that you know, corruption has been, been rising. Under the first Mandela government, the arms deal uh, was, was highly corrupt and known to be corrupt at the time. It's uh, uh, Andrew Feinstein's book, a former ANC uh, member of parliament. He, he writes very interestingly in uh, After the Party about this whole process. So the corruption is not new. It continued. Um, but if you want to look at another reason for this kind of dysfunction at, at, at levels of government, look no further than the ANC's National Democratic Revolution and its cater deployment. Is, is it pronounced cater deployment? Cater deployment where, uh, where people are placed in, in institutions, in, in government, based not on their competence or on merit, but based on, uh, often on race and, most importantly, on loyalty to the ANC. Um, so uh, this is why you have these strange, bizarre situations like with the Competition Commission and the Department of Health. Uh, there's an exception, of course, with the South African Revenue Services, uh, where competence was a, a primary concern. That trumped uh, loyalty to the ANC. Getting money to fund for all the goodies, uh, out of getting money out of taxpayers, was, uh, seemed to be more important. Um, but try criticizing government, and you might be uh, you, you might regret it. Um, people like uh, the, the mayor now in his public life and also as, as a private citizen are rare. One incident uh, over a decade ago stood out to me. In, in 2004, Tony Treo, who was then the CEO of Anglo-American, one of, I think, then South Africa's largest business and a, a global mining company, was interviewed on prospects for the country, uh, for, the, for the company, and he happened to mention an element of political risk in South Africa. Uh, he was roundly condemned, principally by President Mbeki and, and hauled over the coals uh, for what was determined to have been a racist remark. Uh, I'm not sure why that's particularly racist. I think political risk exists in every country, but it was determined to be racist. And that was an important signal to, to shut up and to, to toe the line. Last year, Chris Hart, who was a, uh, an economist at Standard Bank, one of the country's largest banks, was being interviewed and happened to mention his concerns about the growing welfare state and a culture of dependency. Uh, because of those remarks, he again was condemned as racist and forced out of his job. Uh, and just recently, the uh, former head of the opposition, the Democratic Alliance, uh, and current premier of the Western Cape, Helen Ziller, tweeted after a, um, a visit to Singapore, I think, that not everything about colonialism was bad, that countries can take some of the good aspects, some of the, some of the institutions, uh, and learn from them and use them uh, profitably, like many countries have done. Again, she was uh, uh, castigated, hauled over the coals, called uh, uh, a racist, and disciplined by her own party for these uh, unacceptable remarks. So from Tony Treyer to Chris Hart to, to Helen Ziller and to many in between, uh, the ruling party seems to have sent a, a pretty strong message not to criticize ANC policies, nor if you do, to be hounded uh, out of public or private life. Uh, like I say, it's, it's rare to find people with the courage of, of, of the mayor to, to take on uh, these, uh, these policies. So it's my impression, unfortunately, that the, uh, 
the space for free and open expression uh, is narrowing. The marketplace of ideas is, is very shallow in South Africa and getting shallower. Uh, and you see this most worryingly, I think, on, on university campuses in South Africa, where uh, I know here we have our problems, but there in, in South Africa as well, expressing uh, different opinions is, uh, is, to be, is discouraged. And, and there's been a spate of violence on, and, and property destruction on universities. Um, this, is very, uh, this, is, this is very worrying. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, scholars other than I could be far more eloquent in, in explaining why uh, countries suffer when the uh, freedom of expression uh, is curtailed, when it becomes unacceptable to express certain ideas. Um, I think one of the problems that South Africa faces is that for far too long the, the media, both the, the local and uh, the foreign media, uh, cut the ANC far too much slack. Uh, as the as ANC policies uh, uh, progressed, as the uh, as economic freedom declined, as the government uh, in, uh, inserted itself in all areas of, of of life in South Africa, from sports to to business, on the whole, the media cheered the ANC along, very rarely um, uh, criticizing them or calling into question policies. Even when policies like Black Economic Empowerment were were shown to have not been to, uh, providing economic growth and leading to, to greater and greater cronyism and corruption. The exception, perhaps, was over President Becky's dealing of HIV-AIDS and over his stance over Zimbabwe, which became very unpopular, and ultimately, including his more far too center-right economic policies, led to his, his downfall. Uh, of course, so it's interesting now that the media, now that the ANC has started targeting uh, some... Uh, journalists like uh, some editors and cartoonists like uh, the political cartoonist Zapiro, now the, now the media suddenly thinks it's unacceptable for the government to be inserting itself in, uh, in, in, in their lives, but it was okay in every other life. So, well, let's hope that uh, they, uh, they've learned something there. Um, so with the rise of, of President Zuma, it seems that the, uh, the wheels have, have come off. The, the mayor has already mentioned the rising problems of corruption. Just last week, Moody's downgraded South Africa's credit rating to BAA3, which is just one, uh, one rung, rung below junk status. Uh, and the mayor already mentioned the, high, the, the, the firings of uh, finance ministers uh, to uh, promote a, a, a Zuma loyalist. This is all worrying. And it's unsurprising now that the country has gone back into recession for the second time in nine years. South Africa has this uh, a constitution that's widely admired. Uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has mentioned that uh, were she to, to write a constitution, it would be the South African constitution. Uh, but I think we should be a little cautious here. For, for starters, the, the constitution contains numerous uh, positive rights, such as the right to food and housing and healthcare and social welfare, that the government can't possibly uh, provide. Uh, so what, what, what value does a constitution have in, in guaranteeing rights that are undeliverable to begin with? But perhaps a more important problem is with the, with the dominance of the ANC in parliament, with members of parliament uh, nominated, not directly uh, elected by, uh, in, in their uh, constituencies. There's little incentive to really use the constitution to, to protect minority rights. Thankfully, uh, the judiciary is uh, still independent and is a check on power and is being used uh, to check the government's power and has ruled against the government. And this is something that is crucially important and must be uh, protected. Uh, it was 
uh, in Zim we've mentioned Zimbabwe already, it was really when Mugabe sacked the Supreme Court uh, that uh, for, for ruling against his illegal land in, uh, appropriation, that Zimbabwe descended into a, into a violent dictatorship. Um, so we need to protect uh, and the, uh, the independence of the judiciary, and the government needs to uh, abide by rulings, and it doesn't always do this. A couple of years ago, uh, Sudan's uh, President Omar Bashir was visiting South Africa. South Africa is a signatory to the International Criminal Court. Uh, a warrant was out for his arrest uh, for crimes against humanity. A high court judge issued um, an, uh, an order that he should not be allowed to leave the country. The government ignored this and let him leave anyway. Uh, so this is, these are, this is a, a worrying sign. South Africa isn't, uh, isn't Zimbabwe yet. It's not going down that, 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 that road, but at least I didn't think so, and it's hard for one to, to think about a country descending to that, uh, that quickly and that drastically. Uh, until a couple of recently, when there was an incident in a small town in the northwest called Coligny, uh, where a, the death of a, of, a, of a young black child led to uh, widespread rioting, looting, and destruction of property. And uh, I'd encourage anybody who's interested to read uh, Rian Malan's account of what happened there, uh, because it's, it, it seems, according to him, that uh, there was um, some political uh, influence, some instigation uh, to uh, political instigation in, in, in the violence and destruction of property by the, uh, the, the, the local ANC party. So uh, this, is a, this is a very worrying thing. It's something which has to be, has to be uh, watched very closely. I, I don't know where this will end, but it, uh, it seems to me that the instincts of the, of the ANC uh, when it comes to its uh, public policies, particularly economic policies, is almost always wrong. Um, we heard from the mayor about this new um, mining, this new rule about 30% of uh, share ownership in mines has to be owned uh, by blacks. Will, will this encourage investment? Will, will foreign investors really want to come and invest in mines in South Africa? I don't know. Uh, probably not. With, um, with the high unemployment that we've, uh, we've already described, the response from the ANC has been to implement a national minimum wage at 3,500 rand a month which is higher than the wages of 47% of the country. Is this going to increase demand for labor? Probably not. Uh, we've uh, heard about the failing public hospitals. Almost every week there are stories of drug stockouts and of declining levels of care in, in public hospitals. What's the response from the Minister of Health? To push forward with the national health uh, insurance plan, essentially nationalizing health care, and his policies have been driving out and making it impossible for private healthcare to exist. Uh, is this going to improve healthcare? Probably not. Does the ANC care? I don't know. Uh, when it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know when policies are, are doomed to failure. Just look around at other countries. South Africa doesn't have to go down the same path as other countries. It can learn from other countries' mistakes. And yet, as I said, there are other examples, but in almost every instance, the ANC chooses the path of greater government involvement, uh, reduced economic and individual liberty. Um, perhaps one of the reasons it keeps on making these mistakes uh, and choosing these bad policies is that, is that the senior leadership of the ANC is dominated by communists. 
uh, and has been for a long time. The Minister of Higher Education is a communist. The Minister of Trade and Industry uh, is a communist. Uh, and it, it seems like the political discourse has been veering left, further and further left, to sort of almost like Venezuela levels. Um, one have to, if you look at the policies that are being enacted, you have to conclude that the ANC does not care about economic growth. It cares about dividing up the economic pie and redistributing income. Growing the pie uh, seems to be anathema to the, to the Zuma government. Uh, I, I'm glad that Mayor Mashaba mentioned the uh, state capture, the, the Guptas being the most prominent family that have captured uh, the, the, the state for their, own, um, for their own ends. I think it's also important to point out that there's been a different kind of state capture, a leftist state capture, since 1994, where leftist NGOs, leftist donor agencies, leftist academics have washed up on the shores of South Africa like, like so much flotsam and jetsam and have skewed the, the political discourse leftwards. Uh, often against the advice of South African uh, uh, academics, South African econo economists and, and policy advisors at institutions like the Free, Free Market Foundation and the South African Institute of Race Relations, who have long warned about uh, the direction the country is going in. Um, of course, these NGOs and academics can always leave. Uh, the, the, those who advise against have to live in South Africa with the, with the uh, consequences. So I, I, you know, I'm delighted to, to hear the mayor speak about his plans. I'm, it's, it's very encouraging to hear the top of his list is economic growth. Uh, more power uh, to the, the mayor to achieve those, uh, those goals. If I would push back a little bit, I would, I would mention how, how worrying it is that, um, that the Democratic Alliance has, in order to, to capture more uh, ground, has, has adopted some of the ANC's policies, but perhaps most worryingly, that it has come down as it has on... Uh, Helen Ziller for expressing ideas that I think should be uncontroversial. Uh, there has to be a firm commitment in the classical liberal tradition of uh, freedom of expression in South Africa. Otherwise, um, uh, I'm not sure where the, the country goes. Lastly, I, you know, for those interested, I've mentioned um, Andrew Feinstein's book, which is interesting. Uh, a new book for those interested in, in South Africa and, and the how it, how it arrived here, the, the new book by John Kane Berman called Between Two Fires. It's a very interesting look at South Africa's, uh, the, 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 the classical liberal community in South Africa and how they have fared over the last 50 or 60 years. It's a fascinating read. I'm going to end there. Thank you. By the way, Marion and I don't always appear identically. It's only when, only in public, we, we coordinate. <laughs> only when we don't coordinate. <laughs> Uh, Richard, um, uh, thank you very much for, uh, for, for that and especially for mentioning the Free Market Foundation because in my opening remarks I forgot to mention that uh, uh, Mary Mashaba was uh, the chairperson, chairman of uh, Free Market Foundation for, for many years. So his uh, free market and classical liberal bona fides are very firmly established and he must be surely uh, one of the most prominent uh, classical liberals or libertarians in power anywhere in the world. Um, with that, let me open it to Q&A. Um, please wait to be called on. Um, if you would please uh, wait for the microphone to come to you. 
um, and then um, uh, tell us who you are and uh, who you represent, if anyone, and kindly make your question as, as short as possible and, and form it um, in, in a form of a question. So with that, are there any questions? Oh. Can I just yes, of course, yeah, form, yeah, form okay. Open the floor. Certainly, yeah. Thank you very much uh, for giving me the chance and I thought uh, appropriate that before we open the floor to Q&A, just respond uh, to Richard's uh, comment, obviously quite useful. But I think, um, Richard, I just need to uh, bring to your attention that um, in South Africa, if your focus is on, on the ANC, you'd reversely still be living in the past. South Africa has moved on. ANC is no longer an, an issue that uh, South Africans need to concern themselves about, confirm, confirm themselves to that level of worrying about the ANC. Let us worry about the future. People of Johannesburg, people of Port Elizabeth, people of Cape Town, people of Tswane. The four big metros of South Africa spoke, spoke in a democratic kind of fashion, says ANC does not represent us. So therefore, our concern has to really be about what's happening right now in South Africa with our preparations for 2019, just around the corner. Yes, I agree that um, the concern was about the ANC in the past, but people of South Africa have spoken, and I can assure you, ANC is history. In a few years' time, ANC will be in our history books. That is where it belongs. Let us focus on the new South Africa, that people of South Africa have begun their journey on the 3rd of August, 2016. Okay, uh, Q&A, uh, let's start. Uh, yes, gentleman over there. Well, <clears throat> good morning. Uh, my name is Perry Scalfano. I'm a student here at American University. Um, this is a question to Mama Shaba. Um, I'm interested, uh, we, talked, we talked a lot about free markets and you know, opening up uh, to business here you know, in, in Johannesburg. Um, I'm interested in how the EFF acts as a partner in your coalition, considering their very anti-market stances. Um, Julius Malema's uh, uh, remarks on, uh, on Mugabe's government, for instance, in Zimbabwe seem to be uh, maybe very uh, worrying on that subject. So I'm very interested in how you feel they've acted as a coalition partner, and if you think they'll be a stable coalition partner in the future as the possibility of the Democratic Alliance uh, coming to power without the EFF uh, may be somewhat limited. So I'm very interested in your feelings on that. Thank you. No, you, you can stay here. Well, a very interesting uh, question uh, to, be, to be asked. Let me just really give you the context and the historical, um, actually the proper historical context. When I took over this job, um, I threw the head uh, in the ring for the DA, and confident uh, of getting an outright majority. But the residents and the voters of Johannesburg decided otherwise and decided to put together a coalition of government. Uh, they abused that uh, experience under ANC for many years. They said, no, this must come to an end. 
And I remember quite well that just over a week after the elections, Julius Malema and the EFF had a press conference in Alexander Township, said to the nation and the DA that we are happy to lend you our support to dislodge the ANC. However, you can only do it on condition that Herman Mashaba is not your mayor. I remember quite well, I was home on my own watching this press conference. I was the happiest man on that day, on that minute. The reason I was actually quite happy because for me, this job was the last job in the world I wanted. What I wanted was to dislodge ANC. So then I said to DA, please, let's give uh, into EFF if we've got to dislodge. ANC and I'm a problem. And obviously you can understand why I was a problem to the EFF because of my unapologetic views. So I said to DA, please, this is the last job in the world I want. Let's put someone in charge. Unfortunately for me, my party refused to accede to EFF's demand. And a day or so later, EFF came back to the nation. They says, look, you know, for us, South Africa first. We're happy and willing to give our support to the DA. They're a better devil. So I accepted the responsibility a week later on the 22nd of August to be elected by DA, our other coalition partners, including the EFF. I knew I was a better devil than the ANC. That's a title that the EFF gave me. And I embraced it. Today, 10 months later, and I say this with deep appreciation, that EFF, the last 10 months of my administration, they've been the most supportive party than anybody else. Their understanding of issues, something that I was concerned about, because uh, for me, taking over now, all of a sudden I've got to take this job as, as, the, as a better devil. And I looked at the challenges I was going to face, 170 billion rands of infrastructure backlog with only 10 billion rands to address it. And I said, I'm in trouble here. How am I going to pass my budget? Because AFF is going to expect me to come out with a 370 billion rands budget when I only have 10 billion rands of CAPEX. I managed two weeks ago to pass my first budget. In fact, from day one, every month when we have council meeting, every month there is something that I put through to council that I need to pass. We differ with EFF from time to time, but we differ on nine issues. Nine issues that would actually threaten our government. First budget passed two weeks ago. Actually, I remember quite well uh, on, on the day of council, uh, EFF uh, stopped us from uh, coming out with too many speeches. This is uh, May and the speaker, please just arrange to go to voting. Because they knew ANC was going to vote for every piece of suggestion. They were the ones who said, please, let's go for voting. Let's uh, cut out all the speeches. I prepared a 10-page speech to council to convince them. Says, you don't need this nonsense. Just go to um, this budget that was given to everyone some time ago. So let's go out and vote. And EFF voted with us. I'm glad to let people of South Africa and the world know that 
my government when was just given even three months to survive. We're now 10 months. We've now passed our first budget, the most difficult. So South Africa is safe because EFF and I, we share the same passion. Our passion is South Africa. Okay. <clears throat> Lady over there. Thank you. It's been a wonderful panel. Um, my name is Sarah Jordan. I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University. My question is also for Mayor Mashaba. So it's wonderful to see a lot of new spirit coming in uh, to South Africa and Johannesburg. What my question is, uh, and certainly the role of business is extremely important, so it's great to see that there's going to be opportunities for entrepreneurs such as yourself to rise into a better situation provided by your government. Uh, along with that, we know that there's a very important role for education and training. Uh, so given uh, the opportunity that you have now with your government and the clear infrastructure needs, as well as uh, what I suspect are some of the pretty significant challenges to the forgotten uh, component of part of people in your population, how you see uh, the role of your government as well as the other uh, South African governments in uplifting people to a better economic situation through education and training. Very important issue to be concerned about. Um, you know, in South Africa today, it's a tragedy. As I indicated in the open, my opening statements that uh, today, 41 years later, uh, today South Africa, it's a public holiday. June 16, it's a, it's a youth day. And when um, youth also went to triggered what actually came to be known as a revolution that led to 1994 elections. And one key aspect of that that triggered this 41 years ago was education, because the apartheid government wanted to force all of us to do everything in Africans, if you remember. They even wanted us to, uh, to study English in Africans. And the youth of South, of South Africa said, enough is enough. It's actually now set for us as South Africans to accept that our education, 22 years into our democracy, is one of the worst in the world. 80% of public schools in South Africa today are dysfunctional. Dysfunctional as a result of uh, ANC's relationship with the labor union, SATU, the South African Teachers, um, Democratic Teachers Union. Very unfortunate. Our families, our communities in poor areas, Soweto and so forth, they have to travel in buses and taxis uh, to go into previously white uh, schools because uh, schools in our areas uh, are dominated by unions that ANC is protecting. And as is in municipality, unfortunately, education is outside our competency. It's a national and provincial competency. However, we're not to go over identified one area that we can make an impact to our people. Working with the MMC of um, community development, we are investing heavily and in um, early childhood uh, development centers run by 
entrepreneurs, particularly women in our communities. We're working with the private sector, Hollard Foundation in particular, pumping money to ensure that uh, we can help set up the centers so that every child in our communities um, is given this basic education so that we prepare them when they're going to, to formal education. At least uh, we've given them uh, uh, the, kick, the, the, the beginning of their lives. So that is for us as a municipality what we can do. Unfortunately, education will uh, hopefully, working with other political parties, it'll be our competency 2019. And that, unfortunately, we've got to wait for the next two years. That is why it, uh, it's important for us to prepare ourselves accordingly. All right, let's take a question in the center. The gentleman in the middle, yeah, yes, yes, you. No, no, the, yes, yes, you, right here, right. I'm David Cherry. David Cherry from the Executive Intelligence Review, Washington. Um, I share your hope that, and your. Uh, Could you speak louder, please? That investors will flock into Johannesburg. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I have serious doubts that it will happen. So, uh, let me tell you why I have doubts, and and let me hear your response. Um, when. Mr. Mandela became president. He toured much of the world, including Washington. He saw President Clinton. And he was soliciting investment. And nothing happened. Very little happened. Um, the, the, the ANC government then um, moved away from its initial economic plan and adopted Gear. Okay, I will need to ask you to please ask your question because we have other people waiting. Yes, okay. Um, and still nothing happened. Becky became president, and he anticipated a lot of investment that didn't happen. Uh, so, can you be more specific about why, why you think it will happen now? And, and, and uh, as part of my okay, no, that, that, that's good. Mentioning China as a source of investment. Okay, so yeah. what, what makes today different and what about China? Well, uh, yeah, unfortunately, I don't have uh, the stats uh, with you that you says um, uh, Mandela's era never happened. Uh, please um, just really look at South Africa's um, economic growth and direct foreign investments that came during Nelson Mandela's era. Mandela, when he took over, uh, took over the bankrupt... Uh, uh, the economy that was not growing. And please uh, look at um, the right now, to go into your stats, look at the growth of South African um, government under Nelson Mandela. So as far as to say, sit here and say it never happened, very far from being true. It only, uh, South Africa started happening second uh, period of Tabombeki's era when Tabombeki started coming. Even during Tabombeki's first term in office, South African economy was attracting investments, was growing. But then he, during his second uh, period, that's when even some of us actually began to lose uh, 
hope and interest in the ANC and, and the others too. So it is definitely far from being true that uh, it never happened under Mandela because the facts are there, not uh, to what I say politically. Please look at the South African economy growth, including foreign direct investment that happened during that period. Okay, let's move to the left again. Yes, you in, in front in the beige suit, yeah. Uh, Lawrence Freeman, an uh, independent political analyst, economic analyst for Africa for about 25 years. Uh, I follow all your arguments about the ANC, and I'm not sure. I don't agree with all of them. I don't think the ANC is going to be nothing uh, to worry about. But uh, I'm probably in a minority in this room, which might provoke a discussion. Don't you think there is validity in the work that, A, President Zuma is doing in infrastructure, uh, particularly, I, I'm very happy with the potential of 9,600 megawatts of nuclear power that he's trying to negotiate. Uh, don't you think it's also positive what he's doing with the BRIC countries on promoting infrastructure and also, also with the Chinese One Belt, One Road, uh, which just had their conference? These are all positive things that Zuma is involved in that can help and aid the economy and development of the people. And I think in your particular view, and I understand your ideology well, I think you're overlooking all this and, and pushing it aside when, in fact, if you look globally, I mean, there's enormous amount of infrastructure development going on, including in Africa for the very first time. Standard gauge in Kenya, Ethiopian Djibouti okay. Railroad, which I was on. So there, this is something that, that the president is focused on and is doing, and I think that should be supported. Well, I uh, cannot just really imagine how anyone would uh, support uh, 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 Jacob Zuma and uh, his initiatives. Fortunate enough, uh, I'm not the one to sit here and be critical of Jacob Zuma. People of South Africa are the ones, the voters, actually spoke on the 3rd of August, um, getting ANC uh, to dramatically lose out. 54% of ANC people themselves are saying, this man has got to stop, uh, has got to step down. So I don't really believe that um, South Africa can ever progress under Jacob Zuma's uh, tenure. My personal view, and I believe very strongly supported by majority of South Africans, there's a reason why even ANC people uh, that are concerned about the future of our country have decided to take a stand and say, enough is enough, Jacob Zuma must step down. And I think uh, they've got my support. We need uh, Jacob Zuma to step down yesterday. No, I Well, if you look at some of uh, his policies, uh, yes, just yesterday, uh, the stock market shed over 30 billion rands in the mining sector when one of his ministers uh, came out uh, with this policy uh, pronouncement around um, to the mining sector. And um, because Jacob Zuma's administration, they've now developed what they call radical economic transformation. In the meantime, they're radically destroying our country's economy. So... <laughs> I cannot really do, is there anything positive personally that I see in Jacob Zuma? Uh, in a scale of uh, one to 10, I, I would not even find a space because I wouldn't give me anything even in, I'll give him probably, if he's lucky, minus 10. <laughs> yes, and we'll come to you in a second. Yeah, in pink shirt. 
Can I ask you how you foresee the, uh, the 2019 election? Zoom is going to be term limited, so complaining about Zoom is kind of not, a much, not much of a starter. So who do you think is going to be the leader of the ANC that you're going to be your principal opponent? Leader of ANC, well, uh, well look, we'll be lucky. Uh, I'm not a political scientist. Let me just share with you quickly how dangerous I am as a political analyst. And I think I need you to be very careful uh, about this because uh, when I went to university, I studied, I was majoring in political science, uh, was my major. Um, I only passed uh, political science one because it's my second year, the disruptions. So my knowledge of politics is very dangerous. So please uh, listen to me at your own risk. Um, my view... Will we still have um, the political party called ANC in 2024? I actually doubt. Um, it'll be in our history books. So for me to worry about the next ANC leader, it's immaterial. It's, 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 it's a non-issue because um, I, I personally don't really believe that um, there'll still be an, a political party uh, in our ballot box called the uh, African National Congress. Our children will have the pleasure to read about it in their history books. <laughs> okay. So we have time. Uh, we have two minutes. So why don't we do three one-sentence questions over here um, in, in this segment here. Those two gentlemen and the one in front, and that will be it. Yeah, but really, honestly, just one, one sentence each, okay, on, on the question. Um, uh, my name is... Michael Howard, I work at the Jack Kent Foundation. I spent some time studying at UCT, and this is for Mr. Trent, um, just the, uh, the freedom of expression, the suppression, I thought I witnessed it firsthand, and I was just wondering um, when the ANC, or if it does fall, do you think that those trends will reverse, and how do you um, try to get those to reverse, or like... Um, okay, freedom of speech yeah. question. The one behind you? Good morning, uh, Nick Golding from the University of Cape Town. Just here for a while. Uh, the question that I have is, in the next general election, if uh, there is a coalition government between DA and the EFF, what do you think the greatest challenges uh, you will be facing in that time? Thank you. And uh, the gentleman in front, the last question. Anthony Pitch. I'm a former journalist in four continents, and I've worked in the former Congo, in Kinshasa, all the way down south. Uh, my question is, if you say that the ANC is so entrenched with their corruption through the unions and through other, they're planting people in important positions, how on earth do you change a culture like that? Thank you very much. So, Richard, first to you, and then we'll end up with the mayor. Uh, yeah, uh, briefly, I think th freedom of speech is a, is a problem around the world. We're seeing it on campuses here. Uh, luckily, in the United States, we have groups like the like FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, that's pushing back. And I think that in South Africa, uh, this kind of suppression has to be argued against, uh, particularly by opposition members of parliament who need to say that it's acceptable to, uh, to express your mind, whether or not you agree or disagree with those, uh, those policies. So uh, I don't know. It's, uh, every time it seems to uh, get worse, I think it can't get any worse, and it does. Um, but uh, I think a lot of it has to do with political leadership standing up and saying, uh, saying not, not standing for it. Uh, just out of interest, Fleming Rose, who was prevented from speaking at uh, University of Cape Town, is a senior fellow here at Cato. Please. 
coalition government of 2019, I think, um, I think for me it's, it's a very high possibility that we're going to see a coalition government coming out of our general elections in two years' time. And I think that coalition government at national level uh, will have a huge advantage of the learnings of currently the city of Johannesburg, city of uh, Nelson Mandela Bay, Port Elizabeth, and Tswane Pretoria. So we're working um, with the coalition arrangement with the EFF and other parties. So I think by the time we go to national elections, we'll go there prepared because these particular ones, um, I think I know personally, uh, that I used to be asked during the elections uh, if I'm ready for, during the campaign trail, about uh, coalition arrangement. And I've always refused to talk about this. And I said, no, we're going to win outright. But fortunate enough, uh, if you really look, uh, you listen to the discourse in South Africa right now, all the political parties outside the ANC, you're already preparing ourselves for a coalition arrangement and taking the learnings from Johannesburg, Port Elizabeth, and everywhere else where this arrangement, um, uh, it's already in place. So I think it's not going to be anything new. So already they'll have a two-year advantage of um, taking the learnings uh, fr from the current coalition arrangements. And changing the culture of corruption, is it possible? Highly possible. People are not by nature criminals. Yes, F few members of, uh, of, of human uh, uh, beings would really be, but generally uh, a good number of people are uh, uh, in any nation, they're good people. And us as the city of Johannesburg, we've already embarked on this uh, to make sure that we just don't rely on the criminal justice system to assist us uh, on this. We're working uh, as a city, spending a lot of money on changing the mindset of our people, putting together professional public service so that they realize that public service is a calling. It's something that you're there to save your communities. We're working with the churches, actually, um, uh, the, uh, when I leave here, I've got to check with my uh, team in the back in Johannesburg, working with them. Last Saturday, before I left home, I addressed one of our church uh, groups around uh, this whole question of asking the churches to assist us in, in preaching about these realities. I said to the churches, please, uh, I respect the fact that you can talk about something that happened 2,000 years B.C., that's great, but please let us use what's happening in our communities for us to actually relate uh, to what's happening in our country. And um, as a city of Johannesburg, without any doubt, we're making progress. Every single day, more and more people are coming out, sharing with us uh, some of the challenges uh, of corruption that are happening. So I'm confident um, uh, we are going to win because uh, people really just needed uh, the, an exemplary leadership, and that's what we're trying to pro uh, provide as a city of Johannesburg. Thank you, Mayor. Um, lunch will be served upstairs on the second floor. Uh, thank you for coming, and uh, help me thank our speakers. Thank you. Thank you.